Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here is what's on the podcast today. Aaron O'Toole and Mob Rule. 75 years since the end of the Second World War. And a shooting at a bakery on Eglinton West. All of that is coming up. Let's get to it. I got my eye on my email. Just checking my email, you know, like a boomer, just like you do. Just keeping an eye on that email. You know what I'm looking for? I'm looking for something from the TDSB. Anything from the TDSB? Nothing from okay, the TDSB. Boomer. Nothing from the TDSB. Maybe I should check Facebook, the other place that boomers go, for information. All of your Karen information right there on Facebook. But nothing from the TDSB. Although they did put out some sort of a announcement yesterday. Not, not through direct communication to parents, but... Uh, saying that, you know, when kids will be going back, what day, and all of that sort of stuff. So we're still all waiting for information. So that's good. All just waiting for information, us parents. Meanwhile, as you heard in the news, teachers are saying, I don't know what I don't know what the province is talking about physical distancing because it's not going to happen in my classroom. And we have this whole collapsing classroom thing, which you know, sounds like a bad 80s techno band song, collapsing classrooms. All of it we're keeping an eye on. If we get any more details for you over the next course of this hour or today at all, of course, we will bring that to you here on Global News Radio. The premier is uh, going to Ajax. He may be in Ajax already today. He took the GO train. Took the GO train! Doug's on the GO train! Uh, to, to highlight that it's safe to go on public transit. This is one of the things that he's doing today. There will be, of course, more and more questions about back to school and about collapsing classrooms and all the rest of that. And we'll keep you up to date on all of that. But I want to talk about lying. Man, there is nothing. There is nothing that gets under my skin and makes me more angry than when a politician lies to me. It just irks me. You know, remember when Justin Trudeau said uh, Bob Fife was totally wrong about SNC-Lavalin? Remember that thing? Remember that? That's a lie, is what that is. Your pants are on fire. Obviously, that lost the Prime Minister a lot of support. You can't come back from it once you start telling fibs. But there's outright lies, and then there's just general misinformation. A bending of the truth. Take things that are not related and put them together so that in the public's mind that they... They're interrelated when they're really not. I'll begin with this example from the person that some people call the liar-in-chief, Donald Trump. His fibs are well-documented. But last night, Donald Trump was in Kenosha, Wisconsin, touring areas that had been impacted because of protests. And here... He is posing with a business owner. Here is Donald Trump speaking and then the business owner. So this store was here 109 years. Just about the oldest in the nation doing what you did. Oldest in the state, for sure. Uh, It's fantastic. And we're going to help them a lot. I think we're going to help them a lot. Would you like to say something? I just appreciate President Trump coming today. Everybody here does. We're so thankful that we got the federal troops in to help, because once they got here, things did calm down quite a bit. That is John Rode, you heard speaking there with the president. He was presented as the owner of Rode's camera shop, which was destroyed during the demonstrations in the wake of the shooting of Jacob Blake. Except, 
A man by the name of Tom Graham says he is the owner of the camera shop. And in fact, that he bought it from the Road family eight years ago. Mr. Graham says Trump's references to Road as the owner of the business were deceptive. The White House responding, however, that Road and his family originally did found the camera shop and still own the building in question. Where is the truth there? Is that a bending of the truth to fit the narrative? Do not sneer and puff your chest and say, well, that's there and we are here. We are superior in Canada. This is one of the great faults of the Canadian psyche, of the Canadian uh, national identity sometimes. And it, it, it bothers me all the time when we just we, you know, we get, oh, well, mm, we are better. Because it's not true. Here's a prime example of bending the truth. The new conservative leader of Canada, Aaron O'Toole. He released an online ad. came out yesterday. And what you are about to hear is dumb and dangerous. Over the weekend, protesters tore down and beheaded a statue of Sir John A. Macdonald in Montreal. Later in Toronto, a statue of the Virgin Mary was decapitated outside a Catholic church. We are very sad, and of course our community was very uh, horrified by what happened. That is an ad from the Conservative Party, where Aaron O'Toole ties together the toppling of a statue of Sir John A. Macdonald by Black Lives Matters protesters who are upset about uh, racial injustice and with the decapitation of a statue of Virgin Mary here in Toronto from a church in Parkdale. Mr. O'Toole knows well enough that those two incidents are not related in any way. That one is demonstrations, and you can say what you want, you can believe what you want about the vandalism and the destruction of the property, and we're going to get into that. But what does it possibly have to do with the vandalism of a statue of the Virgin Mary? There there were no Black Lives Matters protesters outside that church in Toronto, Mr. O'Toole, and you know it! And trying to conflate the two together to sort of say to Canadians, well, hey, you know, Canadians of religious faith, you know, perhaps you of the Catholic faith, you know, hey, those demonstrators are going to start with Sir John A. Then they're coming for the Virgin Mary. But back to you, Aaron. Canada is better than mob rule and attacks on freedom of religion. And it's incredibly disappointing that it took Prime Minister Trudeau so long to condemn these illegal acts. That is Aaron O'Toole. As part of a conservative ad. Here's something that I think you should know. When you hear the terms mob rule, what does that mean to you? When you hear mob rule, does that make you think, yeah, that's right, we need to get, man, we need to get tough. We need to get the swinging batons out there. Because the mob, well, they're, they're going to come and take away your freedom of religion. They're going to come and take away your icon. They're going to break off the head of the Virgin Mary. That's not what happened. It's not what happened. And as for it took Justin Trudeau 
so long to condemn these illegal acts. If I'm doing my math right, I'm t- uh, two days. It happened on Saturday, and the prime minister talked about it on Monday. Now you can you, you can quibble over how strong the prime minister should have been on this. But for the record, here is the prime minister on Monday. But we are uh, a country of laws. Uh, And we are a country that needs to respect uh, those laws, even as we seek to improve and change them. And those kinds of acts of vandalism are not advancing uh, the path towards greater justice and equality in this country. That is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau calling what happened to the statue of Sir John A. Macdonald an act of vandalism and saying that this is a country of laws. Earlier this week, I had conservative Senator Linda Frum on this radio program, and she said, well, you know, she's a bit on tilt because she found herself in complete agreement with the Prime Minister. But apparently, it was not fast enough for Aaron O'Toole. And Aaron O'Toole, how about you puff out your chest and tell us that we're better than the United States? This is Canada. We don't settle our differences through violence and lawlessness. We don't want to see the division and polarization in the United States to come here. It is Aaron O'Toole, who is willing to bend the truth much like a certain leader south of the border, and then says, well, we don't want that kind of thing to come here. When Mr. O'Toole won the conservative leadership, I think a lot of centrists were very thrilled with what he had to say. Big tent party, doesn't matter who you worship, doesn't matter who you love, you have a place here. Here's Aaron O'Toole just a few days ago on the Roy Green Show on this network. We are a party of liberty and and meritocracy. We want to see zero roadblocks for anyone. We have a zero tolerance for racism, anti-Semitism, intolerance of, of any kind is is really a cancer that we have to we have to stamp out and that is Aaron O'Toole saying intolerance is a cancer that we must stamp out. I would ask Mr. O'Toole that he also stamp out misinformation and this sort of dog whistle to believers that somehow protesters mob rule are coming for you next. It's not true, and it's dangerous to say so, and I expect better from Aaron O'Toole. What do we remember and what do we celebrate in this country? As we have seen with the protests recently across this country toppling monuments and statues, we know that history is a living, moving thing, and our interpretation of it continues to change And it reflects what's happening around us currently. On September 2nd, 1945, a formal signing of Japan's surrender was held aboard the battleship USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay. And with that signing, the most deadly and destructive conflict in human history, a war that killed at least 75 million people worldwide and claiming 45,000 Canadian lives, and left another 55,000 Canadians physically and mentally scarred, was finally over. Aboard the Missouri, Japanese foreign minister was there. Also a Japanese general were there to sign the instrument of surrender, and those two men were later convicted of war crimes. 
Also on board the Missouri, of course, General Douglas MacArthur, who is Supreme Commander of Allied Forces, signing for the United Nations. Chester Nimitz signed for the United States. There were delegates from other Allied nations, of course, including a Canadian representative, Colonel Lawrence Moore Cosgrave. And when Cosgrave signed the Japanese copy, perhaps owing to a blindness in one eye, he placed his signature below the line reserved for the Canadian signature and instead signed on the line of the French representative. And if you have seen pictures of the instrument of surrender, you know that every signature after that has to go down and eventually the final signature is just sort of on the bottom of the page, all out of order because of the Canadian. Something that we maybe don't know. And why is it that we don't know? To talk more about history, warfare, and remembering in this country, I am pleased to welcome to the program Tim Cook. Tim is the Acting Director of Research at the Canadian War Museum, the author of a number of award-winning books on military history, including The Fight for History, which will be published next week. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. When we look back on the significance of what happened 75 years ago, what is it that Canadians are remembering and perhaps should be remembering that we're not? Well, I, I think we should remember that 1.1 million Canadians served in the Second World War. That's a staggering figure um, from a country of 11 million. So about 1 in 10 Canadians we fought around the world. Uh, we fought in Hong Kong. We fought in, in uh, Dieppe, in Sicily, in Italy, the Battle of the Atlantic, the Air War, D-Day, fighting through Normandy. I could go on and on, the liberation of the Dutch. And yet, despite punching above our weight with our massive home front production, I argue in my new book, The Fight for History, that we haven't done a very good job in telling our story. We, we didn't uh, write novels and history books in the same way as the Americans or the British or even the Germans or the Japanese. We didn't build the same memorials. And we allowed our contributions, for the most part, to be forgotten until quite recently. Tim, was that because of a national forgetting, because of the trauma of the Second World War? I don't think so, because because every country was traumatized. As you said, 75 million uh, empires destroyed, the rise of superpowers, a decolonization of large parts of the world. I think it was because, for the most part, uh, when the Canadian veterans came back, and as you said, 45,000 were killed, 55,000 wounded, they they came back to a country that had been battered uh, during the course of the war, but was moving forward. Think of the proper prosperous uh, second half of the 20th century. It emerges out of the Second World War, and our veterans led the way. The baby boom, um, the 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 urbanization and the industrialization of the country. It all comes from the Second World War. And as we were moving forward into the 20th century, we left the war behind, even though. There were at least a million veterans in Canada from the Second World War, and probably at that point about 500,000 veterans still alive from the First World War. And I, I find it really amazing that, that it wasn't the same touchstone. Um, if you think of the First World War, think of Vimy and the Poppy and John McRae and Remembrance Day. They all come from that war, the trauma of that war. And when I was writing this book, I thought, isn't it strange that we don't talk about the Second World War in the same way in terms of commemoration and remembrance. The sacrifice 
of older generations is often used um, to influence the next generation. So I'm, I'm wondering how we look at the fighting spirit and the combat nature of Canadian troops within understanding, you know, our role as, as you point out, peacekeepers, or at least our aversion to a future conflict. Yeah, I write about that in the book, that that we didn't build the same memorials, we didn't talk about the war in the same way, we didn't produce the same films. And then in the 60s and 70s, when we did think of our military, it was really through the lens of peacekeeping. Now, I'm really proud of our peacekeeping history, and I'm proud of the role that Canada has played on the world stage and in trying to help other countries forward out of conflict. But we, by doing that, we left behind the Second World War, and we didn't talk about it, and we often didn't even teach it in our schools. Um, and it, it's quite a dark chapter I, I write about in the book of how we just forgot about this and how we, we really didn't pay attention to our veterans or our massive contributions uh, in what I think uh, was a war of absolute necessity, the war against Hitler and the Nazis. There are very few people at the time, or even today, who would say that that, that was a war that, that, that had to be won, right? I mean, we just had to win that conflict. And yet, for decades, we did not celebrate it. We did not commemorate it. Um, uh, we were poorer for it. I'm speaking with uh, Tim Cook, who is the acting director of research at the Canadian War Museum and has a new book called The Fight for History. As we talk about history and we see what happened in Montreal over the weekend with the toppling of the statue of Sir uh, Sir John A. Macdonald, I'm wondering from a uh, historian perspective how you see how we commemorate events of the past and deal with the thorny issues that perhaps we haven't dealt with. I have we we have to talk about our dark history. We have to uh, confront it. We have to uh, not be afraid of history. And I think we're living in a moment now where history is very divisive. And often um, our solutions are, are not to talk and to debate and, and and to argue fiercely. It is to tear down or to cancel. I'm a historian. I believe that's wrong. I think that we can use the past to understand the present and and perhaps to move forward into a, a better future. And with my book on the, on the Second World War, I, I think I lay out um, what happens when a country doesn't talk about its history, when it allows other countries to define contributions. And think of the Americans and how they talk about World War II, almost winning it single-handedly. Of course, most Canadians would say they weren't in the war until December of 41, um, and, and that Canada played a massive contribution. But because we didn't do a very good job in talking about our own history, um, I, I think we allowed others either to ignore us um, or, or simply to, to be written out uh, of the history by our own hands. What, if there's one thing to take away from the Second World War that you think that Canadians just, A, don't know about or don't celebrate in a way that they should, is there one thing that you hold up and say, this is something that we should have a better awareness of? I think I would say that this is the 75th anniversary this year. Um, 8th of May on the end of the war in Europe, uh, the 15th of August, uh, the war against Japan, um, those were cancelled because of COVID or for the most part very muted. I think I think we are moving towards a period now where we have fewer than 30,000 veterans from this war and we will lose them over the next 5 or 10 years. They're all 95 years or older. And so I think now is our chance to listen. Now is our chance to ask questions. Perhaps now is a chance to 
record the history of a grandfather or a great-grandmother who served or their children, now is a chance to perhaps bear witness to this generation that is, that is passing on. Tim Cook, great to have you on the program. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Tim Cook is Acting Director of Research at the Canadian War Museum and the author of an upcoming book called The Fight for History. It will be published next week. More gunfire overnight in the city, and it has got to have authorities and communities worried all across this city. Uh, Not just targeted shootings, but also shootings where it seems that uh, the gunmen are just willing to open fire indiscriminately. And that seems to be what happened last night on Eglinton West, just uh, steps off the street in Little Jamaica at a bakery at 2 o'clock this morning. A gunfire erupted, six people hurt, including five men and one woman. One woman, pardon me. Witnesses say some were hit in the legs and arms. People was on the ground, lay down bleeding until the police come. Ambulance picked them up and everything was okay. So yeah, that's the word go bye 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 bye. You know that? That's what I hear. But I never see no one. I don't know who do that. That is a witness to the shooting, Harris Francis. Loxley Brissett runs the shop, the bakery in question, and said when the gunfire began, for a moment he wasn't sure if the sound was thunder from a storm or bullets. I was sitting down and when this guy was talking. So then when we see everybody rushing, so I hear the sound of the bullet. So I get up and I run downstairs. And he ran underneath the table. I almost got hit because it go over my head. I was sitting down and it go over my head. I went in the fridge. That is the owner of the bakery that was shot up last night. Toronto police have just held an update into the investigation into what happened. And Global News reporter Miranda Anthesel was there for that update and joins me on the line. Hi, Miranda. Hi, Alan. What are police saying about what they know about this this incident? So they are saying that this is likely a gang-related targeted shooting just based on the drive-by, what happened in the early morning hours. They know that there was a dark SUV that basically drove by this bakery, which is a well-loved bakery, a longtime staple in Little Jamaica, Spence Bakery. A number of people were huddled outside taking cover from the rain under the awning when this vehicle drove by, police say, slowed down, did a U-turn, came back, and then opened fire on the crowd that was standing just outside the bakery. So they say it is gang-related and targeted. They wouldn't say whether or not there was multiple targets within that group, but at least one person was the target of that shooting. But they were clear to say, Alan, that the bakery itself is not affiliated with any gangs. Again, it is a longtime staple in the community. You know, police officers go there. It's well-loved, well-liked. But the shooting itself, gang-related. Yeah, I heard the uh, officer saying that uh, uh, numerous times, so wanting to point out that uh, the, the bakery itself and the owner of the bakery, that there's no concerns with the establishment itself. What do we know about potential surveillance video? So that's what officers are doing right now. They're you know canvassing for video. That's going to be the most important part. They did specify that they have a very good working relationship with the community, with the businesses there, with politicians in Little Jamaica. So they are speaking to witnesses, they're canvassing the area, but video surveillance, this investigation is really going to hinge on that because right now they have a description of the vehicle, again, a dark SUV-type vehicle, perhaps a Nissan, but they don't have a license plate at this moment. It's always tough when police hold these press conferences because there's little that they can say sometimes, and you know reporters are just sort of forced to ask the same question over and over. 
But was there any indication at all about, you know, is is this a particular, you know, gang warfare in this area? Are there rival groups? To, what kind of background did police give us? That Well, like you said, Alan, their hands are somewhat tied it's early on in the investigation. The superintendent, Sean Noreen, wouldn't go so far as to say there were gang wars happening. However, he did speak about it being gang-related. He didn't go into too many details about what that could mean, which gang it could be affiliated with. You know, he did say that shootings, you know, in the area, he didn't say shootings necessarily were up, but under the pandemic, he said because of unemployment, the criminal element is still out there actively. And he's saying that it is actually easier for criminals to find their targets because people aren't necessarily, you know, they might be at home where they could be, but they could be in the community just outside the different stores. But he said that it is easier now for criminals to find their targets. Miranda Anthesel is a Global News reporter and will have a story tonight on the ongoing investigation in the search for the gunman after uh, a shooting at a bakery in Little Jamaica overnight. Miranda, thank you so much. Thanks, Alan. I mean, I I don't know what more to say about that. I mean, we just keep hearing, you know, anecdotally, night in and night out, you know, shooting, shooting, shooting. We've had them in Eglinton West. We've had it in Eglinton East with a number of shootings there in that area as well. And and we, we don't seem to get any closer to any answers other than, well, you know, maybe it's the pandemic and, well, you know, it's gang related. Uh, and I, I think that the city could use a little bit better explanation if there is one to be had. And I'm not certain that there there is, but it is obviously concerning when we see the increase in gunfire and just the indiscriminate manner in the way that firearms are used by gang members. Just absolutely terrifying. I got an update on a couple of quick stories I want to bring you. Uh, this one, the BBC has now reversed course and announced that the lyrics to Rule Britannia and Land of Hope and Glory will be sung on the final night of its annual music festival. Do you know the background of this one? Last night of the proms is this big deal in Britain, and it always ends with a big, rousing singing of Rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves, and then a big playing of Land of Hope and Glory, these two iconic songs. Uh, and the BBC said, well, we weren't, we're going to take out the lyrics, uh, after long-standing accusations that the lyrics to both pieces are racist and glorify colonialism, uh, and so the BBC says we're not going to we're not going to sing those. We're just going to take that out. We we'll take the lyrics right out, uh, and that of course set off a huge firestorm in that country. You know about cancel culture and about historical significance, and the prime minister weighed in, and now the BBC has backed down. And, of course, we have our own situation about this very same kind of issue in this country right now, don't we? Because of uh, Johnny McDonald, the statue being pulled down, toppled in Montreal over the weekend. The prime minister has weighed in, called it vandalism, says, you know, this is a country of laws, is not helpful. And Aaron O'Toole, as we began our program with today, has, you know, somehow conflated that with the destruction of a a statue to the Virgin Mary here in Toronto, which, by the way, we're looking for one person caught on uh, surveillance video. There's there's one suspect outstanding. It's not the same thing at all. Nobody's trying to cancel the Virgin Mary, Aaron O'Toole. But I, but I digress. And I just noticed now that the New York Times has just now filed on John A. McDonald 
and the destruction of the statue. And this is the headline from the New York Times, just filed shortly ago. A statue of Canada's first prime minister is toppled, but politicians want it restored. Subheadline is John A. Macdonald was a divisive figure who tried to wipe out indigenous Canadian culture. Some leading politicians, including Trudeau, criticized the vandalism of his statue. So other countries, the New York Times, paying a little attention to Canada and the situation that we have here. And, of course, that news on the BBC. Uh, Doug Ford, I think I might have said earlier in the program that he was on his way to Ajax. He's in Whitby. Whitby. He took the GO train to Whitby today, and that is where his announcement will take place. In the next little while, he'll be doing an announcement uh, and be talking about transit and people getting back to work and back to the routine as we get past Labor Day. Yeah, And he will also, of course, be asked about the question that is top of mind for everybody, especially if you got kids, is what's going on with back to school? I'll bring you a couple of peaches for that great, great question. I got a whole basket of them here. Thank you, thank you. It is a good question, and you must be handing out a whole lot of basket of peaches because every day you get good questions about it, and the answers are not always so clear. Yeah, yesterday, for example, uh, the premier and the minister of education were asked about this whole collapsing classrooms thing, where you know because fewer kids are going into class and actually going to school that therefore we're going to combine classes because there's a provincial mandate about the number of kids that are supposed to be in any particular class. I will I will just read this for you. Uh, this is a tweet thread from an elementary teacher in Ontario. I don't know exactly where she is, but she writes, so many tears at my school the last two days. We are losing some incredible educators to surplus. We now have junior immersion classes of 25 instead of 18 to 20, kindergarten classes of 29. Our supplies have not arrived. No timetables or detailed assignments, no class lists. And when uh, the Minister of Education was asked about this whole collapsing classrooms thing, he did give an answer, but, you know, I forgot my corporate speak dictionary. Protocol in place to de-risk the circumstance. So I don't know who's de-risking what circumstance. I don't know what in the world he's talking about if I don't have my, you know, jargon dictionary with me. And as a result, all of us parents are still wondering. We're still all wondering about what is going to happen, and how do you make a decision about whether your kid's going to go back? You've had to register your kids already for this last weekend. If your kids are going into the TDSB, I've registered mine. My kids are going back to school. I believe I'm sending back the kids back to school. I think the risk level is low, but I think the communication is terrible. I, I think it's a good plan. I, th- if that's the best you can do, I'm, I'm, I'm begging now. I know, I know, it's not an easy thing. Parents are upset right across the country. You know, as you look at, you know, British Columbia or Alberta, you know, parents don't feel any better there either. And, you know, I, I take the premier at, at his word when he said, well, our, 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 ours is the best in the country. Yeah, well, best in the country doesn't necessarily say just safe. 
Guys, let's be positive. I know. I'm trying to be positive, and I'm trying to lay out both sides of the issue here, as we do each and every day on the Alan Carter radio program. But the fact is, is that when you ask questions about why is it that if fewer kids are going to class, we're going to surplus teachers and we're going to have empty classrooms so that we can put all the kids together, and the Minister of Education gets up there and he de-risks your circumstance. Protocol in place to de risk the circumstance. I don't know what that means. Here's a statement from Ryan Bird of the TDSB about this whole collapsing classrooms. Collapsing classrooms. Uh, typically, reorganization of classes happens in the first two weeks of the school of each year. This year, based on recent received student registration information, we're actively working on that process prior to school starting. With that in mind, we do not anticipate a larger number of combined classrooms. So if your kids are going to the TDSB, yes, maybe your class will be combined. But the TDSB says, well, not more than normal. It just might have happened. And all of it depends on the number of students and families making a request to switch from either remote learning to in-class learning. And all of it is so very confusing you should see the you should see the chart the tdsb sent out yesterday about when your kid is you know going to start class man obviously i got to go back to elementary to be able to read a chart because it was confusing talk about rich talk about ironic all right all right i don't i don't need your wagging your finger at me i have good questions doug ford and you know it the questions are good the peaches I'll bring are you a better. couple of peaches for that great, great question. I got a whole mm. basket of them here. Delicious Ontario questionable peaches. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch the Alan Carter Radio Show weekdays starting at noon.